Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live Multispeed Technologies, the L. Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my host, Mr. Stevens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. You know what I like about my job? What's that? I like that I can, I've been in the same uh, technology for, well, let's say eight years. And I still come away, like this week, I walked away going, how did I not know that? Um, <laughs> still learning stuff. Still learning stuff. And sometimes it's, it's legitimately like, wow, that is really cool. Like, how did I not know that? Kind of. So I had one of those weeks this week where I was just pouring through some, some of the spec docs and stuff like that. I'm like, I had no idea it could do this. Well, I'm glad that that was your experience, Steve, this week, because the news that is coming out of the open source world is one that everyone would do well to keep an open mind and be prepared to learn something that maybe you didn't know before. SUS, a key pri- SUS Linux from SUS.com, a key priority to continue to provide choice for cu- customers. SUS has announced today that they will build support and contribute a hard fork of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the code base to the community. This is what we excel at. And it will give long-term credibility and choice to customers. Equally, as an enterprise Linux user, you can switch SUS while keeping your existing Linux. At SUS, we are experts at providing enterprise value to users of open source software in a highly competitive way without compromising what is important to customers. So before I go any further, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things, Steve, chief of which, what who? What is their target audience for this letter to use phrasing like, you can switch to SUS while keeping your existing Linux? You know what? I have, uh, I have a lot of spicy thoughts about this. And, and uh, maybe sometime when we're not being broadcast over the radio, a few of us can get, to, get together <laughs> and chat about this. Um, but I think it's an interesting play. Like, on the face of it, I, I read their, um, I guess you could say press release. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure what whether it was a blog or a press release or whatever. I read it several times because I thought, I've got to be missing something here. Like there's some subtext or something that I don't get because I, I'm not closely attuned with the, with the SUSE folks. Um, ultimately, what it felt like is they are... So if you rewind the clock back to last year, if you remember, they released... Um, do you remember what the the project is called? So they they had Liberty, Liberty. They have Seuss Liberty, which is essentially a a way to help you manage um, rel based or CentOS or Alma or Rocky those those type of distributions. Um, it's a way to help you manage that those sorts of um, uh, heterogeneous environments. And then they come out and they talk about how. Uh, you can switch to SUSE while keeping your existing Linux. To me, if I think back to the Liberty announcement and then the the subsequent rollout, of course, it 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 was more than just an announcement. They rolled it out. What it seems to be is they're looking to be um, 
able to support enterprise customers across a variety of distributions instead of just like niching down on their own, like Canonical and Red Hat and Oracle all specialize in their own uh, their own software and the stuff that they ship with their distributions as mm-hmm. best they can. And it seems like, now you tell me, but it seems like this is SUSE saying, hey, we'll, we'll support a broader um, audience than just SUSE Linux. Yeah, I mean, there is a question of value add here, right? Is it is the value, and we're going to talk about the announcement from Oracle here in just a moment, but you'll notice a common thread here. Is the value proposition that you're bringing something to the party, and so you ultimately are trying to convince the target audience that you bring more to the party than the people that you're forking, or is the value there that you're a clone of the popular thing? I'm a bit confused. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Like I said, I I have some... um rough analogies that that were running through my mind or or when I was running through this is thinking you know how would I I've, I've been a big fan of those uh, YouTube series where it's like x if you were honest like the mm-hmm. government if it was honest or you know company if it was honest and I, so I tried to I tried to remake this blog post in the if you were honest <laughs> kind of style just mm-hmm. out of because I was out to amuse myself um, and at some point I'll share that with you and some of the uh the close listeners in there on Mumble, perhaps. Maybe that's the hook to get more people to join in on Mumble. But uh, for the public eye, I, I'm not really sure what Seuss's game long-term here is. It, it, if I was to try and be as analytical as I could, I would say it seems like SUSE isn't getting enough core business with SUSE Enterprise Linux in North America. I would stress that because I know that over in Europe, they're a lot more uh, entrenched than they are here. And so, as all companies are, they're looking to open up markets. And it seems to me that they're saying, well, we weren't able to uh, create a bulkhead for our product in North America. So maybe our footprint is, hey, you know what? We'll help you in this time of need. And again, putting my SUSE um, hat on, not necessarily this is what I I think is happening, but I think this is what's going through um, some people's minds is like, there's been a disturbance in the open shift force, as it were. And so Seuss is looking at this, like, how do we become good guys, right? And Seuss has always been the scrappy kind of underdog's not the right uh, term. But, like, if you look at Baby their Red music Hat. videos. What's that? Baby yeah. Redhead. I, I also wouldn't go that far either, right? Like, they stand on their own. They do a lot of really good technical things, like mm-hmm. the build service and so on. So I, I'm trying to be as generous as possible. Sure. But, you know. But it does seem like you have to decide, is it your product that is better or is it the duplicate that is better? Where is the, I mean, so so that really comes down, you know, come down to it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So they've made this hard fork. So they've kind of made their bed in the sand. They looked at the lay of the land. They believe that they're up to this challenge. And and so they're going to do this. Now we've invited Seuss on the show. So we'll wait to see what they have to say. And I'll be interested to hear it directly from them. Also in top of the news this week, Oracle. Oracle came out with an announcement on their site, and I have to be honest with you, I am I am shocked that this left Oracle's press room. I really am. Um, so just kind of stepping through this piece from Oracle. So they say Red Hat is owned by IBM. So they... So 
they make this distinction between IBM and Red Hat. And what I think is interesting about that is, yes, it is true that Red Hat is owned by IBM. And so in theory, IBM could absolutely come in and tell Red Hat, you will do X and Red Hat would have no choice but to do X. But the people that I've talked to at Red Hat tell me that isn't what happened. In fact, they emphatically deny that that's what happened and say that nobody from IBM was anywhere near the room. So I'd either like to hear where IBM had something to do with this, or I wish we would stop referring to IBM as Red Hat, even though we can all acknowledge what is blindingly obvious, which is that IBM owns Red Hat. And I, I mean, unless we're just going to start going, to, you know, you don't know the answer to that. Just Alphabet Corporation. It. I'm, I'm sorry. What you mean? Google it? No, 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 no. Alphabet Corporation. They own Google, so it's their search engine. So you, you Alphabet Corporation it. So from their article, from Oracle's article, why did IBM? make this change. Well, if you read IBM's blog attempting to explain their rationale, it boils down to this. Redhat.com. At Red Hat, thousands of people spend their time writing code to enable new features, fixing bugs, integrating different packages, and then supporting the work for a long time. We have to pay people to do that work. So the emphasis there, what I take from that, from what Red Hat wrote, is that they are a conduit between the people that are willing to pay code and the people that are willing to write code that want a paycheck for it. That was from redhat.com, which is apparently IBM's blog. So the article from Oracle continues. Interestingly, IBM doesn't want to continue to publicly release RHEL source code because it has to pay its engineers. That seems odd, given that Red Hat is a successful independent open source company that chose to publicly release RHEL source and pay its engineers for many years before IBM acquired Red Hat in 2019 for 34 billion dollars and perhaps that's the real answer to the question as to why eliminate competitors fewer competitors means more revenue opportunities for ibm and i think that's that line right there the real answer to the question is eliminate competitors and there's few competitors and more opportunity for ibm i think that is the disconnect for me and for a lot of other people so what i take away from all of this is red hat said, go find a problem and make it better. Go do something, essentially. Contribute something. So I'm looking to Seuss and to Oracle and Alma and Rocky and any other distribution that was previously a RHEL clone to find a problem and make it better. And then they concluded with this. And this is the line that maybe just almost fell off my chair. As long as Oracle distributes... Linux, Oracle will make the binaries and source code for that distribution publicly and freely available. So that is the easy part of the promise to keep, right? Anybody can publish their code to the internet. That part isn't hard. They continue, Oracle welcomes downstream distributions of every kind, community and commercial, and we're happy to work with these distributors to ease that process. Work together on the content of Oracle and ensure that Oracle software products are certified for your distribution. Okay, that's better because at least now we have the and so here's what we're doing part of it. But it really only matters if people want to clone what you have in the first place. And then I misspoke. This is the part that I almost fell off my chair. Finally, to IBM, here's a big idea for you. You say you don't want to pay all those rel developers. Well, here's how you can save money. Just pull it from us. Become downstream distributor of Oracle Linux and we'll happily take on that burden. Like I said, I'm utterly shocked that this left Oracle's press room in part because it's Oracle, right? They are a legal entity with a bunch of tech stuff attached and hanging off to it. They're hardly considered like the pinnacle of a technology. 
the other part of it is people have not forgotten Oracle. People, I mean, do they think that we've forgotten how they treated Sun Microsystems? How, what happened with OpenZFS? What happened with MySQL? How about the lawsuit in federal court against Google for using a Java API for an open source language? So I'm, I'm not saying that Red Hat is perfect and beyond reproach here, but this feels to me a little bit like the pot calling the kettle black. And again, the most valuable contribution an established company can make to the open source world is to be a conduit from the people that are willing to pay for the code to the developers to write the code. The big difference between proprietary software companies and the ones that make open source software is simply that they make the code available. And Red Hat has consistently been a company that found people doing valuable work on projects and gave them a check to continue doing it. And Rel mailed JT, Q5Sys in the chat room and on Twitter, they mailed him his copy of the source code that he was entitled to under the GPL. So Red Hat is keeping their end of the deal. And I get that it feels like it's your big brother who's always had your back on the street. And all of a sudden now he just left you out in the street while he went inside to the nice big house to play with his new friends. And, and if Seuss and Oracle have something of value to add to the mix, then I'm excited to watch them do that. Because I like the comp idea of competition. I do. The, the more people playing, the better we all are off. But nobody needs Red Hat's permission to succeed here. You don't, even, you don't even have to announce that you're doing it. You can just go do it. So support releases for 10 years at a time, for eight releases since 2002, nine versions before that, going back to 1994. Do that for 30 years, and I promise you, you'll have earned the same amount of trust that people had for Red Hat. But don't kid yourself. One, Red Hat absolutely has the right to do this. And it is also true, because two things can be true at one time, that Red Hat is absolutely painting a back on their target or a target on their back. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's not uncouth and doesn't mean that people don't see it that way. And so that target is it, it spreads fear that leads to insert uncertainty and insecurity. And that creates this vacuum of opportunity for everybody else to show up and say, we'll save you from this. Right. And so. To me, it comes down to. You use Red Hat the way they tell you to use it, which is stream. It tracks ahead, but realistically, there are not going to be any problems. Use Red Hat proper with a free developer account or pay for a Red Hat subscription because it's only $179 a year. Or wait for Alma and Rocky and Oracle and Seuss and to figure it out, and they will. And if they don't, somebody else will. Valve seems to be doing just fine with Arch shipping it with KDE to people all over the place that bought their, their box. And if you're still worried about it, then I would say I would, I would suggest that you ask yourself this. When was the last time that you as a Linux nerd had to use one very specific distribution of Linux or the world was going to come to some catastrophic end? You can make it work in just about any distro. So there's legitimately... there. In fact, I have trouble sometimes. I'll SSH into a machine and I'll forget what the underlying OS is, thanks in large part to Ansible. I don't... It largely, sometimes that gets obfuscated. And with the mutability and containers and all the rest of it, that's going to become even less relevant, even more than it was five years ago. Steve, your thoughts on the Oracle thing? Oh, man. Where do you start with something like this? <clears throat> so, first Unbreakable of all, Linux, that's where. Yeah. With right? Java. Does it work? I'm sorry. Well, yeah. Um, so Oracle becoming the upstream of RHEL is kind of an interesting thought. I don't have any inside knowledge into what Oracle does to build Unbreakable Linux. <laughs> I 
feel like there might be harvesting of the source RPMs from the Red Hat um, Red Hat sources, either CentOS or wherever they were getting it from. I feel like that was likely part of at least part of the strategy. And again, I don't have any knowledge to that. I'm sure there are engineers working away there. Mm, I wonder how much how much additional work it would be for them to take on the idea of, okay, we'll pull it from CentOS stream. If they're not going to pull it from stream, where mm-hmm. are they going to get this from? Who like, are they going to chart their own course, which is a possibility, right? Like before, before CentOS stream, Red Hat charted their own course. So, I mean, that's completely possible. The question then becomes, um, as as Red Hat, you're not going to do that because you are now putting your reputation on the line, like the the hard earned reputation. Let let's roll back the clock six months before this decision was made. Yes, okay, we've got the CentOS stream thing that happened two years ago, but notwithstanding that specific uh, situation, Red Hat built a really good reputation for delivering solid enterprise software that was crusty. And crusty in the business world is good, mm-hmm. but they didn't get there overnight. It took them decades to get to that point where they could be trusted enough to get into government or wherever else that that Red Hat is currently dealing. You then become a downstream of someone else who is making those decisions for you. And what does that do to your reputation in terms of those places where you've gotten your foot in the door? It probably doesn't help you, right? So... Red Hat Oracle, if they do simply rebuild the source, and again, I don't know that, but if they do rebuild the source RPMs, Oracle, like the other distributions, are riding on the coattails of RHEL's reputation. If you flip that, there is no reputation and all open source loses, right? Do you, 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 do you believe well, Do you believe that this was a six-month thing, or do you believe that this was kind of the plan for the last two years? That hey, we're going to move, we're going to move this chess piece here, we'll move that chess piece here. I mean, I, for all of the defending I've done, and God knows I've done my share of defending of Red Hat over the past few weeks. At the same time, I'm not entirely buying that they shifted CentOS stream around, and then two years later went, mm, you know, here's another thing. I'm kind of wondering if this wasn't all planned, you know, at the get go. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I've just. You know, mm, I like calling it a thing. A thing. I doubt it. it. It's it's possible, right? I don't have any knowledge, so I I know Mike McGrath just just because I work at the same company. Aside from that, I have no other knowledge of what's happening, how those decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the fact that Red Hat follows what's called the Open Decision Framework, that doesn't mean that they tell us everything and we all get a vote in what happens. Sure, um, it. So especially from where I sit, I'm so far removed from this in, in my place in Red Hat. So I could absolutely see, I know some of the processes in Red Hat and some of them are long vision. Some of them, however, are we're going to make this decision and then we're going to reevaluate every three months and see where we're at and course correct because Red Hat as a general rule in my experience really does believe in fail fast, which mm. means you don't make that long five-year plan and never revisit it. You know, it's, you know, make, chart a course, check, 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 fail. Okay, you know, adjust the course, check, 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 fail again, those sorts of things. So I absolutely could see this being not initially part of the original intent. 
We'll take a stop in the Linux Newswire newsroom, get the latest from JT, and then Bradley Kuhn will join uh, the Ask Noah Show next. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of July 9th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. BlendOS v3, codenamed Batura, has now been released with a host of new features, including the ability to switch between seven desktop environments easily and instantaneously with a new system track command. Solus 4.4, codenamed Harmony, has been released with secure boot support. The RC1 release of the 6.5 kernel has been released, and BcacheFS didn't make it into 6.5 due to heated discussions, and Linus has asked for calm while the work is completed. China's Ubuntu rebrand called OpenKaiLin has officially released its version 1.0 release. The open source game engine Godot has released the first major update to their version 4 release. And Oracle has weighed in on the Red Hat Linux source access drama by sardonically telling Red Hat to rely on Oracle as their upstream. Kavo is an open source social media system to allow content creators to own their data. The platform will be community-funded, and AI bots will be treated as first-class citizens. The designer of Arcavo, Paul Flynn, has said that Arcavo will use a model similar to Wikipedia, funded by the community with open-source code that lets developers write the features they're looking for. Paul says removing the monetization aspects that commercial platforms have enables the privacy component of users owning their own data. In security news... Recubi is a backdoor malware that targets vulnerable Linux servers and has been known to be in use by the Chinese APT31 team. Recubi is an older malware, around since 2015, but researchers are seeing an uptick in its use thanks to recent updates to the malware. Technical information has emerged for a serious vulnerability affecting multiple Linux kernel versions that could be triggered with minimal capabilities. The security issue is being referred to as stack rot and can be used to compromise the kernel and elevate privileges. A patch worked on by Linus himself is available for affected stable kernels and has been available since July 1st. Full details about the issue, along with complete exploit code, are expected to be released by the end of the month. Stackrot impacts all kernel configurations on Linux versions 6.1 through 6.4. And in hardware news, Xythian 5 is a standalone open-source music-making device that contains 50 synth engines and hundreds of effects. It is built around a Raspberry Pi and has an open hardware design. And Linux laptop vendor Tuxedo has announced their new Stellaris 17 Linux laptop, which they claim is the fastest notebook hardware on the planet. The 5th gen Stellaris 17 laptop ships with an NVIDIA GeForce RTX 4090 and an Intel Core i9-13900HX. And lastly, it may have taken 30 years, but according to StatCounter's data, by July 2023, Linux has achieved a 3% desktop market share. Bradley Kuhn, he is a policy fellow at the Software Freedom Conservancy. Bradley, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Welcome in. Thank you, Noah, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. So I wanted to get your thoughts on... Red Hat and the situation that is unfolding, because as a policy fellow at the SFC, what you guys do is you're a public watchdog. You keep an eye on companies and 
projects and make sure that they stay in compliance with the GPL. So I want to start before any of this happened, even at Red Hat. What, if any, concerns did you and the SFC have with Red Hat and their business model and its relationship to community-oriented free and open-source software? So uh, I think everybody in the community that really follows how the GPL works closely uh, has been concerned uh, for a very long time. Uh, the Red Hat business model, uh, I think, is best described as uh, if you exercise your rights under the GPL, your money is no good here. And what that means is that uh, if you receive a copy of RHEL as part of your RHEL service and you receive the updates and you choose to exercise the rights on the GPL, so you choose to make copies, you would choose to install it on other machines, you would choose to make modifications, uh, what Red Hat can do under their agreement is they can fire you as their customer. And this is all well and good, one would think, uh, but it certainly has a weird series of aspects with regard to how it ends up interacting with the GPL. And there's actually a lot of debate, Noah, in the free and open source software community and has been since 2002 about whether this business model actually complies with the GPL or not. So from your perspective, you know, how, how does RHEL comply with, or at, at that point, how did RHEL comply with the business model? I mean, obviously they must have to a point because there weren't a lot of widespread cases. There wasn't a lot of widespread litigation against Red Hat to the degree that you believe that they did. How were they following or complying with the GPO? Well, I think Red Hat's behavior has varied over time and it's been quite confusing. It's often hard in a situation like this to really monitor uh, their behavior because most of the agreements are made uh, secretly with their customers. They're not known to the public most of the time. Now, there are a number of the REL agreements that are public and if you look at those closely, it's pretty interesting. Uh, what they effectively say is nothing in these agreements, no matter what they say, contradicts your right under the open source licenses to do the things the open source license promise. So from that kind of 10,000 foot level, it's, cl it's clear that it complies because they've admitted that if there's a discrepancy between the rel contract and agreement you have with Red Hat and the GPL or some other open source license, the GPL or that other open source license wins. The terms of that apply, not the terms of the REL agreement. So in, in sort of the general theory of it, it's all okay. In practice, there have been a number of problems uh, that have occurred uh, on the edges of this agreement that I'm happy to talk about if you're curious to know more. Yeah, please. What, what, so can you, yeah, give me some examples. What has, what has happened and what has been the result of those cases? So there hasn't been any court case that I'm aware of, uh, over the REL agreement, but there have been a number of, uh, skirmishes, if you will, about issues that have come up. Uh, the really general one is, is somewhere around the, you know, the mid 2000s, you know, 2005, 2006, uh, people would come up to me at conferences, you know, open source events, uh, those sorts of things. I do a lot of speaking at those kind of events. Very excited. They're coming back uh, now. Finally, uh, as the pandemic begins to wane, uh, but uh, but people come up to me and they'd say, "Hey, you know, so uh, so so this Linux stuff's open source, right?" And I'd say, "Yeah," and they'd say, "There's some license, the GPL, you have you know rights to copy and all that." And I'd say, yeah. And they said, well, why is it that my company uh, has to buy seat licenses to run Linux? And I'd say, what are you talking about? And they'd say, well, you know, we had to buy a bunch of seat licenses for RHEL and we have to pay them for every copy we install. 
And I said, well, that's, it's interesting that you believe that because in fact, the agreements, you know, assert your right to, to copy, modify and redistribute the software into the GPL. But what had happened was when the sales folks from Red Hat pitched it, uh, to the software acquisition people at their company, all they did was talk about, uh, the, seat licenses that they were going to buy. And it's, it's one of these situations where it's like, well, if a, if a GPL violation to mix metaphors a bit, uh, falls in the woods and nobody knows it happened because everybody thought something else was going on. Is there anybody there to hear it? Do they really know it happened? And that's what I saw was happening with a lot of these companies that they were truly convinced that they had to buy a seat license to run rel. Uh, even though the rel, the rel agreements don't even say that they don't use the word seat license, but that's what the salespeople would say. And we saw a number of other incidences around the business model that came up. Uh, one of the examples uh, that uh, you, hopefully in the show notes, you can link to the blog post where I describe this in more detail, but we were contacted by a company a few years ago uh, and they were both a rel customer. Uh, an enterprise rel customer. So they had servers in their data center, but they also sold products that had Linux in them. And they had used a couple of rel source packages in one of their products. And the rel salespeople became aware of this. And I was privy or to, after the fact, see an email exchange where the Red Hat salespeople were demanding a royalty for that product because they said, well, it has rel in it. So you have to pay us a royalty. Now, this particular company was a large company and had very savvy lawyers. Uh, and they argued back pretty hard that they did not have to pay a royalty. Uh, and in the end, uh, that matter was resolved simply because uh, the company in question pushed back. But if they had been a much smaller company, I, I don't think they would have had the ability uh, to push back in that scenario. You know, what's interesting to, about this to me, Bradley, is that you know, when you look at Canonical and Ubuntu, there are a number of projects that have forked Ubuntu source code and used it for all sorts of manner of things. And there doesn't ever really seem to be a huge kerfluffle. There's, you know, if you have official blessed flavors and stuff, that's a whole different discussion. But if you just want to take Ubuntu and fork it and do something with it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hoopla about that. Can you help me understand what is required um, from code obtained from Red Hat in order to be able to use it? Under the GPL, if I wanted to take Red Hat source code and I wanted to use it, what would I have to do to stay in compliance with the GPL? So uh, Red Hat's required uh, for the at least for the packages in RHEL that are GPL, which would include the Linux kernel itself, which of course is under GPL, and any other program that they put into RHEL and package for RHEL uh, that's under even not just GPL but LGPL, any of the copyleft uh, style of open source licenses. They're going to be required to give you the complete corresponding source code, and they're required. Uh, under penalty of violating the license to give you all the tools you need to reinstall it, to rebuild it, all that sort of thing. So you have to be able to get that. The conundrum that people find themselves in is that if they choose to exercise those rights, they have to be ready for Red Hat to cancel their service contract. So it's kind of a, a almost a fear situation where they're afraid to lose their re- business relationship with Red Hat, so they just choose not to exercise those rights. But when you line it up to the other distributions, your rights are basically the same. It's this gray area with this business model where people are afraid to exercise those rights that were guaranteed to them because it's so important for them to keep a business relationship with Red Hat. One of the things I'm seeing consistently misrepresented on the internet, I'm going to ask you this point blank. Does the GPL require Red Hat to make the source code publicly available? That is to say, outside of a paywall. Is that part of the GPL requirement? Uh, Absolutely not. And Red Hat on this particular point is absolutely correct. 
The GPL has never required in any version, and I don't know of any copyleft license that does require this, that the source code be made available to the general public at all times, notwithstanding what's called the general public license. What it requires is that when you receive the software in a distribution of any kind, when you have a copy of the software, one of two things have to happen. Either one, you have to be given the source code at the exact same time that the binary was given to you right alongside that binary. And that source code has to include the scripts used to control compilation and installation of the executable and all the other things uh, GPL defines as source code. And your other option is you can make an offer for source and that offer for source. And this is where people get confused about the public thing. That offer for source has to be valid to any third party. So that means, Noah, if I had a copy of RHEL and I gave you the binaries and I said, oh, I got this offer letter from Red Hat for the source code. I'm allowed to pass that offer letter on to you, Noah, and you could go ask for the source code. So that's why the offer has to be valid to any third party, because that offer could be passed around among the non-commercial redistributors of, of RHEL. But there's never a requirement that they just put it on the internet, and it was within their rights, absolutely, to choose uh, kind of capriciously sometimes to put it on the internet and sometimes not to. So so I, I want to be really clear that, that, that I think people have been unfair to Red Hat on that point because they aren't required to make the source code public. They're required to give it to the people who request it through a valid offer or for people who have received the binaries themselves. So Red Hat's only obligated to give the source code to customers of theirs. So then the question becomes, Bradley, why is having to be a Red Hat customer to obtain the source code a problem for GPL compliance, or maybe I'll say the life cycle of open source? Right. I, I think I think it's it's a really good question the way you framed it there, because my biggest concern with the Red Hat business model, the RHEL business model specifically, um, it, I don't like to, I mean, even though I've spent my whole career focused on GPL compliance, I don't think that's the most important thing to think about. I think the most important thing to think about is not, does it meet the bare minimum requirement to be compliant with the GPL? Because I, I don't know about you, know, but when I was in school, I didn't want to get a C. I wanted to get an A if I could. I wanted to do the best I could. I didn't want to just pass. And so I think when any time a company starts thinking of, well, what's the bare minimum I have to do to comply with the GPL? I just want to do the bare minimum. They're not really thinking about the open source community and what the open source community needs. If they if they really care about open source, they should be like, I want to do above and beyond what the GPL requires. I want to do more because I want to participate in this great community that's building this great software. And I want my engineers to be part of that community. So we want to do above and beyond. So I would hope Red Hat would want to do above and beyond. It's unfortunate that they're kind of focused on this bare minimum question. And I think that's what it comes down to, Noah, because when we look at what Red Hat's doing with RHEL, what they're saying is, well, we don't really want a collaboration around the RHEL source code base itself. We kind of want to control that almost like it's a proprietary operating system. And we only want to interact with our customers about that. And this vilifying of people who are rebuilders, in the end, Red Hat's a rebuilder of all this other open source stuff. They're downstream from that. Yes, they absolutely employ some great engineers who do work upstream on many of those projects, but not all of them. So they're a consumer and, and a redistributor and a repackager and rebuilder of open source source as well. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous from my point of view for Red Hat to argue, well, rebuilders are a problem. Rebuilders are what made open source happen. Lots of people coming together and saying, I'm going to use this source code in a different way. I'm going to build it into my product in a different way. And we built our community around that. And that's why business and open source is successful. And I think to some extent, Red Hat's kind of forgotten that as a big part of their DNA and their history. But to be clear, 
simply requiring somebody to be a Red Hat customer to obtain the source code isn't necessarily a, a problem for, for GPL compliance then? It's it's certainly a problem with regard to the spirit of the GPL. It's a debated fact. Uh, I'm sorry, debated issue that people are arguing about whether it complies with the GPL. Red Hat is really the only one who has crafted a business model like this so well crafted that you look at it and you're not sure whether it complies with the GPL. But like I said, though, I, you know, I think about the spirit of the whole thing. One of the things that's in the Red Hat agreements is that they can audit you at any time to see how many copies of RHEL you're running. And if you're running even more than one copy of what you paid for, they cancel your support contract if they find just one extra copy sitting in your data center uh, that you didn't pay for support for. And so that kind of thing, that's what the Business Software Alliance uh, used to do in the 1990s. They would come into your agency and see how many copies of Microsoft Windows you were running. If you had an unlicensed copy, you were in big trouble. And so that the spirit of that is just not in the spirit of open source. Maybe it complies with the GPL. Maybe it doesn't. I've, I've been looking at this business model for 20 years in my career as a GPL expert, and I don't have an answer for you. I it might comply. It might not. I don't know. It probably depends on the details. I've seen cases in the rail business model that were non-compliant uh, happen on the edges. Uh, like I talked about that example just now, and there's other examples that I've wrote up in my blog post. So I'm, I'm pretty concerned because Red Hat's clearly living on the edge, the bare minimum of GPL compliance, if they are compliant. And I think they should stop living on the edge of the bare minimum and they should try to get an A in open source, not a C. So there's at least no clear evidence that being a Red Hat customer is a violation to the GPL. It's it's at least debated. Does the GPL require the author to maintain a relationship with any particular user, I guess. And so in order to get the source code, you'd have to have a relationship with that company. Does that present a problem for you? Do you see a problem with that? So it's certainly true. I mean, that, that's that's why when you look at the business model from the 10,000 foot level, it seems compliant, right? It's if, if you choose to exercise your rights under GPL, your money's no good here. Um, it's certainly, I, I don't think, uh, the, a requirement of the GPL to maintain a business relationship with anybody. And there's nothing in the GPL that I see that re- mandates maintaining a business relationship. But when you get in these situations where you're, you're using phrases like seat license and royalty in your sales force, uh, when you talk to the people you're selling to, you're, you're certainly creating a lot of confusion and you're certainly giving folks the impression that they don't have the rights uh, that they ought to have under the GPL. And that really concerns me that that kind of rhetoric does get used uh, from what I've been reported, was been reported to me by from Red Hat customers. The other thing I want to note, Noah, that's really important is Red Hat's main concern is how many support contracts you're, 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 you're you're, you're uh, paying for. And that's a totally reasonable problem. Red Hat in its early days had this problem where uh, big institutions would buy exactly one support contract and then they put somebody on staff just to call Red Hat all day and ask for support. And they were just paying for you know one measly support contract when they had, had thousands and possibly hundreds of thousands of servers. I think it's totally reasonable for Red Hat to say, well, if you have that many of our servers running our software and you want support from us, you got to pay more for the support. And I have no problem with Red Hat pursuing a business relationship that says we should get paid more when you need more support. Totally makes sense to me. Uh, but the, the problem comes in when they tie that to the issues of how many copies of the software uh, that you're running. And the other thing is, is, what's the problem if somebody redistributes the source code on the internet themselves? So imagine 
a great example. Somebody's a Red Hat customer. They're paying for exactly the number of support contracts as server they have. But what they choose to do is every week they decide to post the source code on the internet, which is totally their right under GPL. Uh, Red Hat seems to have a problem with that. They don't, they don't say it's a GPL violation because it's not. They don't say it's a violation of the Red Hat service agreement because it's not, but they seem to want to keep that source code from quickly making its way into the hands of what they call rebuilders. And, and I think, I think they should stop trying to prevent that. I think they should encourage rebuilders to get that source code quickly out of RHEL and make other products. Uh, obviously, uh, they can't call it Red Hat. They can't call it RHEL. That would be a trademark, uh, my understanding. I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that would be a trademark infringement. And absolutely, Red Hat should say, you know, you can't infringe our trademarks. You can't call this RHEL. But if Rocky or Alma or somebody else wants to make something that's very much like RHEL, built on the sources as RHEL released yesterday... I would think an open source company would want to encourage that because they want to see their code reused because that's what open source is about. Do you think there's a problem with users being cheap uh, and wanting Red Hat to effectively do all of the work and then they can copy and benefit without any making any meaningful contributions back upstream? Well, I, I think Red Hat's uh, historical enemy uh, is actually Oracle. Uh, I am no fan of Oracle. I think they're a, a, a horrible company <laughs> that's done a lot of horrible things in the software industry. And their primary business is not open source. It's proprietary. And I'm sympathetic to Red Hat when they say, look, you know, Oracle is out there going to our customers saying, you know, you should buy unbreakable Linux. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic that it's difficult to deal with bad actors like Oracle because Oracle can find a way to get the source code and make a RHEL-like product and try to convince customers to switch to whatever they call it these days. They used to call it unbreakable or unfakeable Linux, whatever it was. Um, and I'm totally sympathetic to Red Hat on that. But on the other hand, when you release stuff as open source, you end up having to let your competitors do certain things because it's what the open source license require that you really wish they wouldn't do. Uh, and it's easier to prevent them from doing that if the software is proprietary. But but those of us in the open source community, uh, like the many engineers at Red Hat, have made a decision. Well, we'd rather have the collaboration, have the wonderful effects of sharing our software as open source. Uh, and therefore, we have to kind of tolerate uh, these annoying people like Oracle who who are trying to free ride on uh, great work that Red Hat's doing. And while I'm sympathetic, I also think that when it comes to whether whether we have to deal with Oracle being annoying or make sure everybody gets the best possible open source distributions and rights under open source licenses, I'm always going to go with the rights under the open source license, even if it makes some problems in other ways. I wanted to get your thoughts on CentOS. So CentOS, prior to Red Hat taking over the project in 2014, you said in your blog post, you believe that was an important asset to the community. Can you Take me briefly through why CentOS prior to Red Hat taking over it in 2014 was an important asset. So the great thing about the pre-Red uh, Hat controlled uh, CentOS was for folks like me who are worried about the compliance issues of a business model like RHEL, um, it let me sleep at night very easily. Because I knew the folks in the CentOS community, I'd met many of them and talked to them, and I knew what they were doing was they were they had various ways uh, from various different customers uh, who uh, would give them the source code from RHEL releases as they came out, and then they would build the CentOS release based on the RHEL sources they got from various Red Hat customers who were, in some cases, uh, surreptitiously, but completely permitted under the GPL, giving them copies of the source code. And this was kind of a check and balance on RHEL. 
I always felt while CentOS was an independent uh, distribution, as long as it was keeping up with the RHEL releases, I, I, I was like, well, the, if there are problems around the RHEL business model on the edges, if there are some GPL compliance problems, as long as the community has a good, solid clone distribution that's based on the RHEL sources and it's coming out quickly after the RHEL releases, there's probably not too much harm done because the community is getting what they need. Individual users who are never going to buy a RHEL license can get the same software, uh, which I think is really important to think about because the the there are lots of people who want to run a RHEL-like system, but they're just doing it because they want to run their own servers because they're just individuals excited about Linux. Those people are going to want something like that, and CentOS provided it to them. What happened when CentOS uh, was taken over by Red Hat, which they basically did by making these large, uh, you know, job offers to key people in the CentOS community because CentOS was kind of a true anarchistic open source community. There was no entity to obtain, really. It was just hiring everybody who was working on it. And then they got control of the brand. And then they turned the brand into something else. When they talk about CentOS Stream today, that's nothing like what CentOS was when it was independent. And so that created this imbalance. And I'm very excited to see things like Alma and Rocky because they're other entities that can create a better balance to be able to be a watchdog uh, along with our organization at the Software Freedom Conservancy on the behavior of the RHEL business model and just make sure that it's complying with the GPL and that the community is getting what they need. Why would it not be possible for Alma, Linux, and Rocky to partner up with some Red Hat customers and obtain the source code in a similar way? I, I think it, it could be possible. I think that's up to uh, Alma and Rocky. Uh, the concern that I have is is that auditing aspect of the RHEL agreements. So any customer who does that, any customer who passes the source code along to somebody else, basically has to live in fear that the Red Hat audit is coming. And I can understand and I'm sympathetic to a customer who says, you know what, my business relationship with Red Hat's important. I depend on RHEL every day to do my business and I can't risk violating that agreement. And when I and I can totally get, well, I'm I'm all about the GPL rights. I don't care about the RHEL agreement. I can totally understand that's flipped for the average Red Hat customer. They look at the RHEL agreement, they look at the GPL and they say, well, technically I'm allowed to redistribute the source code if I want to, to help out Rocky and Alma, but I think I'm going to just choose not to because that rel agreement is so important to me. And, and I, I can sympath- I'm sympathetic to that, but it also looks like a certain amount of intimidation. That, that intimidation of the, the Red Hat audit team could show up at any time and check what I've done with the rel source code. Uh, I think that that's really, really tough for, uh, for, for businesses to be put in that situation. It's just not in the spirit of open source, in my opinion. What would you say the role of distributions like Rocky and Alma are today in the ecosystem? I think they're incredibly important. Uh, there is no question in anybody's mind, we wouldn't be having this discussion if RHEL were not one of the most important Linux distributions in existence. Everybody agrees that RHEL is really important. Red Hat's done amazing work putting it together. They employ amazing engineers. Many of the engineers are great friends of mine, have been friends of mine for 20 years. I'm very proud of the work they do, and they're very proud of the work they do because they do all open source. So everybody agrees RHEL is really important. And I think that in that kind of ecosystem, you don't want a monoculture. Uh, My colleague, uh, Jeremy Allison, wrote this wonderful blog post this week where he talked about one of the reasons Red Hat was successful in his opinion, and I think he's right, was that they were an alternative to the Unix vendors of their day. 
they were saying we're we're creating something that's not locked up like Unix was. You don't have just one vendor. You have lots of vendors for the same software you can choose from. We we Red Hat would say to you, well, we think we're the best vendor for you to go to to work with, but there's lots of other options. And I think that that's the 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 real promise of open source is that a customer can say, you know what, I think I'd rather have somebody else support the software, and since it's open source. I can hire anybody I want on the free market to support that software for me because they have equal access to the source code. What the RHEL business model tries to do is it tries to disrupt the access to source code by these various different edge case factors that it introduces into the ecosystem. So I think Rocky and Alma are really important because they create a true open source ecosystem again in a place where unfortunately Red Hat's trying to reduce the amount of open source ecosystem that's there around rail. If you woke up in Red Hat's shoes, what from your perspective could Red Hat do, if anything, that could resolve this situation and, and kind of bury the hatchet, so to speak? Well, you know, I, I, I think I, I'd really like to see Red Hat just go back to making the rel sources public. I, I think this dancing around the CentOS stream and saying it's there if you look hard enough, but you have to like get a magnifying glass out and figure out, um, making people do that extra make work. It's just not in the spirit of open source. It doesn't matter whether we, we, we argue about whether it's compliant with the GPL. It's just not what open source people do. They put their stuff out there and they share it with their co-developers, even if their co-developers don't work at the same company. And I think, I think Red Hat it had a knee jerk reaction here. I think it's more about Oracle than it is about anybody else. And like I said, I'm totally sympathetic on, on, on the Oracle situation. But in the end, I don't think they should be treating these small time folks who are just trying to do things. A lot of the people who are involved in Alma, Alma's a trade association of a bunch of really tiny companies, you know, companies with two and three and four employees. Uh, they are not a, a threat to Red Hat's business model. <laughs> They don't need to be afraid of little companies with a couple people working for them. They're a big, powerful company owned by IBM. They have lots of ability to make money. And I think that if they just went back to the way of collaborating in public over the RHEL distribution, I, th I think that's that's in the best interest of the whole community. And I, I, I'd be surprised if it impacted their bottom line all that much. I, I, they're arguing that it does. But they also haven't like put out detailed numbers to show the community that that's the case, uh, and and that and that they can't. Uh, their argument is they can't pay engineers if they don't do it this way, and, and, it, and I'm just not convinced by that argument. I can't take it on faith. Uh, they'd have to prove that to the community for us to really consider that as as a valid argument. What kind of numbers would would demonstrate that? So if, if somebody from Red Hat were listening to this and they said, "Okay, that seems reasonable. You know what? We absolutely have the data to back that up." What kind of numbers would present a compelling argument? What would you like to see? Well, I, I think I think they'd they'd have to show that the the rel the rel business would collapse because the source code's available, right? Because because the the I, I'm not a I'm not a fan of unbridled capitalism, right? I don't think you should be able to make as much money as you want in any way that you want. There should be some uh, types of controls that benefit the community. The GPL, in some sense, is one such control on unbridled capitalism, because if Linux weren't under the GPL, you could make a wholly proprietary operating system uh, with Linux inside, and you wouldn't have to give anybody any source code to anything. Uh, and so I think I think what, what, what Red Hat would really have to show is, hey, we, we would we would go out of business uh, if 
we couldn't do this. And I think I, I, my, my instincts say that's not the case because for years, this source code has been available. It was available through CentOS because of the mechanism CentOS was using in the pre uh, Red Hat control of CentOS days. Uh, it was available, made available by Red Hat for years and years here uh, went, after they had CentOS. And it's only recently been pulled back. And Red Hat, as far as I know, is doing fine. IBM paid a lot of money to, to acquire Red Hat. So, so I can't imagine that Red Hat was doing so badly when the source code was publicly available. Yes, Oracle probably beats them in some sales because they can have unbreakable Linux, but Oracle's going to figure out a way to get the source code one way or another because they're, they're, they're pretty shady, Oracle as a company. And so I, I don't think it's going to stop them anyway. And they might as well just collaborate with the community because I, I, I believe fundamentally in the rising tide raises rising tide raises all boats uh, philosophy of open source that the more people that want a rel like system the more good that's going to be for red hat maybe not this quarter maybe not next quarter but in the long term for rel if people are running rocky and alma you know many of them are going to get unhappy with Rocky and Alma and say, you know what, let's switch it all to RHEL and just pay Red Hat for it. Like that will happen. It will be a feeder, I think, for their for new customers for them. Uh, and the big companies are just going to buy RHEL anyway, as they always have. So, so I just, I just think they'd have to prove somehow that they're actually going to go out of business, which I think, I think is not the case. If people are listening to this and they want to dig into this issue deeper, they want to learn more on from the SFC or from you, where would you send them? A couple of places. So um, certainly, uh, I, I'm sure you'll link to my blog post and, and Jeremy Allison's uh, blog post uh, in the show notes, uh, which that folks can read more about that. And I also want to let people know a really great opportunity. I know it's short notice. We just put this together, obviously, because the uh, because the uh, uh, this event, uh, you know, this, these issues just started coming up in the press uh, just a few weeks ago. But uh, we have a conference going on called FALSI in Portland, Oregon next week. Uh, it's going to, well, July 14th is, uh, one of the days of the conference. And on that morning at the conference, we're going to have a, uh, keynote panel discussion, including myself and, uh, some folks from various different, uh, organizations involved in this. Uh, Sir, uh, Alma and Rocky are both confirmed. Uh, we've also invited Red Hat to come, uh, to join the conversation. Uh, we haven't heard back from them yet, but it, I think it'll be a great opportunity if people happen to be able to get to Portland, uh, for the event. It's not very expensive and they might, uh, uh, they might uh, enjoy themselves at the many things going on at the Fosse event in Portland, Oregon uh, on, on July 13th, 14th, 15th and 16th. Uh, and then if they can't make it, uh, we're going to be recording that. And then we'll there'll be a recording of that panel discussion available after the fact. And so folks can watch it. So I, I hope people will follow this issue closely. And I, I really hope that the, uh, news that's come out about it is not the end of the story for everybody. Uh, this has been an issue in the open source community of this rail business model and the GPL uh, since 2002. It, it, it ebbs and flows in interest in the open source community, but I encourage people to pay attention to it. The GPL is such an important document in the rights of Linux users and open source users of all kinds uh, that are under these licenses. And I encourage folks to you know watch uh, Software Freedom Conservancy's website, sfconservancy.org. Uh, we're always uh, posting new articles and stuff about issues of GPL compliance and, and these kinds of policy issues that come up. And I, I hope people will, will take a peek at that and, and follow it, even, even when it's not the big news, because there's lots of interesting things going on uh, in this realm of open source policy. Bradley Kuhn, he is a policy fellow at the Software Freedom Conservancy and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Bradley, I thank you so much for taking the time. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thank you, Noah, and thanks for uh, doing this kind of in-depth reporting on open source. I'm so glad your show's out there doing that.
We'll have his blog post linked in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. So a couple of points I wanted to touch on uh, with you, Steve. The first being, so you're a person that's in corporate environments day in and day out. Do you see rel boxes that don't have seat license and rel coming after customers for running boxes that aren't uh, aren't authorized or is that more of a support thing so we are 100 percent based on the support that you provide to us so if you have gone and obtained a copy of rel 9.2 or whatever the latest one is and you don't pay for support beyond whatever point you can still use rel 9.2 in perpetuity forever it just means you can't get the updates and you can't call in for support i have not, not only have i seen i have worked for places where we've got we just stand up a rel box we can't update it but you know maybe we don't need to update it because of whatever its function is i have been in clients where there are a significant number of machines that are not hooked into subscription manager. So there's a difference here between um, what Brad was saying about seat licenses and what we're talking about in terms of subscription manager. So for people that don't know, what happens is if you just install base rel and you don't add in any of your subscription information during the installation or whatever, you don't have any yum repositories. However, that doesn't mean you can't add your own. Should like the you know CentOS ones or Alma ones or Rocky ones? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I used to do that as a a uh, supplement. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. like I said, I've worked at places where where um, like Apple, for example, would be one of the ones that I would add. And you can get a long way with all of those sort of things. So the point is, is that subscription manager is used to populate all of the rel archives and to verify that you have a support agreement for X number of machines. Now there is, so that's not, that in and of itself is not a problem. Now I will disclaim this by saying, I am not the one that is in charge of handling these sorts of things at Red Hat. I am only making observations. What is a problem, however, is when you use something like satellite um, or uh, spacewalk, or there are a bunch of other types of repositories that you can essentially used to cache the packages so that you're not pulling directly off of Red Hat. If you plug though your unsubscribed machines into that, into your own repository, that definitely gets um, murky in a hurry because the whole agreement is you have, you know, whatever your license expired for the number of installs that you did, that's the time where your support ends. If you go and plug those into official um, support channels via your own repository. So let's say you pay for a license uh, for 10 support licenses and you've got 20 machines and you've decided that you're going to move the um, the repository for those 10 in-house. Moving that in-house is fine. doesn't matter, right? That's perfectly legit and under the situation. But if you plug in those extra 10 machines and they then start getting updates, that's where there's a breach of support. And again, I don't work in this area, but if there was a significant enough number of machines in that level of violation, that's when a Red Hat audit, in my estimation, would come into play. So there's a difference between, um, hey, I just grabbed the RHEL ISO and spun up a VM 
but I didn't subscribe it to with the subscription manager. That's completely different than I have a bunch of machines that I just stood up and I'm plugging it into my own update infrastructure, which is bypassing the, um, it's not even a EULA. They don't want us to call it that because it's not an end user license agreement that has a different connotation. But like the service level agreement that, that you have with Red Hat, you're, mm-hmm. you're going around that by doing that process. So that is my uh, slightly higher than layman's understanding of what's happening with the subscriptions. Where do you think this goes from here, Steve? You think eventually the internet just kind of quiets down and, and, and life back to normal as these other companies and, you know, we'll check in with Alma and we'll check in with Rocky. So we'll find out where they are. But I mean, you know, they'll all just kind of land somewhere and then life as usual. Or what do you think the end result will be? Well, I mean, what else can the end result be? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, even Brad himself has said that Red Hat is not in, um, it's not in breach of compliance of the GPL. So what are you going to do? You're going to mm. like whinge forever and hope that your whinging will compel a multi-billion dollar company to bend to your will. Like that's not usually how like corporate business deals work. Now I can't, I can't speak to any of those decision-making situations. And I will say that there's a large number of red hatters who are sympathetic and um, perhaps would have liked to have seen a, a different path or a different way of uh, communicating the message. But that doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, there's nowhere for people to go. You can, you, it'll be in the hype cycle for a while, just like the CentOS stream thing was. That one, that one went on for multiple, multiple months, but mm-hmm. eventually died away, right? And this will die away too. Eventually, it's either going to, there'll be a, a resolution or there will just be an acceptance of this is how life is as we move forward. I wanted to give you guys an update on Beeper. So I got my acceptance as an invitation into Beeper uh, two weeks. It'll be two weeks now. And so uh, coming in, I've lived on Beeper for the last week. And here is my takeaway. So last week I told you the things I was looking to get out of this long-term connection with people, ease of access to a FOSS solution and an easy on-ramp for other people. So as it relates to a long-term connection with people, it absolutely enables me to get to people on platforms that I ordinarily wouldn't be on. So I have reconnected with people on LinkedIn and Facebook and apps that I didn't even have. Like I said, one of the most interesting bridges was iMessage because instantaneously it gets you access to like half of the thing and you get access to half of you know U.S. mobile people that have phones in their pockets and they have done the work to host Macs in their data center so that you can use that service. So I think that's pretty cool. The other thing is it has this coveted single point of contact for messages. And so I don't have to care what your flavor of ice cream is. You're just a matrix message to me. So that part, it absolutely wins on. And just like email, My problem is I'm never going to be comfortable with an endpoint that I give out to people that is outside of my control. So until account portability becomes a thing, if the matrix ID ends with something that somebody else controls, that doesn't really get me there. It feels like I'm going to end up moving at some point and it won't be my, my thing, my corner of the world. So that's where I think it kind of falls down. I think it hits the first two points able to reach out to platforms where I wouldn't have and does bring all the messages into one place, but I'm a little comfortable with that, that endpoint 
not being something that I'm in control of. It would be great if I could sign up for all the beeper bridges and then point them to whatever matrix account I want. For the second thing, ease of access to a FOSS solution. So when I started, it worked with Element. Then I bridged all of the things and stopped working with Element. I was okay with that because, frankly, their UI is flipping spectacular when it comes to dividing up all these networks. I tried doing the bridges myself on my Linux Delta server, and it works. All the messages come to my Linux Delta account, but they're all jumbled up and mixed with each other, and I can't tell one from the other, and it's particularly terrible if the group is double bridge, like there's the bot that sits in the room that relays back and forth because then I'm in the telegram group as well as I'm in the matrix group. And then I get two messages for every, it's just a, it's just a mess. Beeper doesn't have any of that. In fact, they have the, the UI allows you to have this unread uh, inbox. They call it the inbox and you, you click on, you click on inbox and click on unread. And if I get a LinkedIn message, it comes into the inbox. And if I get a matrix message, it comes into the inbox. And I get a Facebook message, it comes into the inbox. And I can choose to go into any platform, and then I see all of the chats. But by default, I have thousands and thousands of chats that I'm in across all of these networks, and I see none of them unless there's activity in them. And I can choose which ones I want to hit the inbox and which ones I don't. So again, that single pane of glass, that part works. The problem that I ran into is it, at least for the middle period, it appeared that you had to use their client, which wasn't ideal. Today, as I was kind of writing up my thoughts and my review for tonight, I tried it again with Element, and it's back to working again. So I don't know. I guess it's it's hit or miss. And then as far as an easy on-ramp for other people, this to me is where Beeper gets a 10 out of 10. So it is flawless to sign up. Flawless. It walks you through. Their wizard is so good. It is. It is just like opening up some very curated, you know, uh, uh, like an Apple product. You know, you open it up and it's got the experience taken out of a box or something like that, or WhatsApp or any of these any of these things that have a, a very nice, a gentle on ramp to show you how to use the thing you're about to use. Beeper has that in spades. There are. I have had no technical issues. Can't decrypt this message. Can't move this. Can't join this room. None of that. It is great and the ui is gorgeous it looks like an app that normal people want to use not that geeks want to use so that's overall where i where i've kind of landed on it at this point as far as the bridges bridges in large part are never going to be perfect in part because it's outside of beepers control they have to work with what other services have available to them and when those services change their api the way they use it or their terms of service or what they're going to block all of these things come into effect and there's it's entirely outside of beepers control and i know that but at the same time hosting the bridges myself you don't get a message for a while and of course you don't notice because you kind of notice not getting something right and all of a sudden somebody said, well, I tried to reach out to you. I tried to send this. Oh, man, that didn't work. And then you look and, oh, yeah, the bridge was down for a little bit or whatever it is. And it's just it's a very embarrassing, frustrating experience. And it starts to make you look like child, children t- with toys. Beeper solves that in part because what they do is they put little X's on each of the network. And so if a network goes down, like I lose my Facebook bridge or my iMessage bridge or my Twitter bridge or whatever, puts a little X right there and tells you this bridge is down. So. I kept track. iMessage went down once, had to manually sign in. Signal went down once, I had to sign in. Signal's a real pain to sign back in because you have to install it on mobile and take a picture of the QR code. Messenger, it disconnected twice. One time it just reconnected. I just clicked on the thing, clicked reconnect and reconnected. The second time I had to go and re-sign in and Instagram disconnected once. And again, just had to go in there and click sign in and it signed itself back in. So uh, we'll see how it works. Being aware that the bridge is down is better than just nothing there at all. But it isn't, it, it, it is of interest to note 
that even a company that is set with the explicit purpose of bridging all of the laces to one place, it's still not absolutely flawless. Now, here's here's what was it. Here's, I think, my biggest takeaway from the Beeper platform, though, in the two weeks that I've been using it. So work great, work great, work great. All of a sudden, they publish an update and it crashed constantly. Like, I mean, to the point that they have this really neat report a bug thing and you click on Beeper help inside of the inside of the UI and it's brilliant. It has search or ask a question. If you type that in, it actually goes through their little AI thing or interfaces to it. And then it'll recommend FAQs or tips and tricks or and if you don't get any of that, you can either share feedback or you can report a problem. In my 20 years in IT, I bet you I've reported thousands of problems at this point to various vendors and Microsoft Windows alone. I've clicked the little send report, send report, particularly in the XP days. In 20 years, never once ever, ever heard from anybody uh, of reporting those problems. In fact, nor have I ever seen a problem be fixed because I clicked on the report this problem ever, ever. I reported a problem in Beeper when this thing was crashing, and I literally couldn't even make it a minute. And so I took Kazam screen recorder and recorded like a minute. I'm like, watch, let me open the Beeper app. Watch it, watch it, watch it. 50 seconds later, crashes. See, that's bad. And I, it took me a couple times just to be able to type something up and copy and paste and paste it real quick and send the report in and thought, yeah, that'll get me nowhere. I got a response. They keep track of who submits these bug reports and somebody messages me from Beeper and they're like, hey, so I reported the thing and, and they, they watch the video and the guy gets back to me. He's like, hey, I saw the thing. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, happens on KDE. So just switch. Some users have, have reported it works better if you switch to no or something to that effect. And of course, my knee jerk reaction is like, well, I'm not getting rid of my desktop environment because to use your app, but um, nice try. But, but they at least acknowledged there was a problem. And they responded, which is more than I can say for any company ever in the history of time. I've been reporting problems in in software. Now, that's, there's exceptions for things if you go to their repository and open an issue and stuff like that. But I mean, from within an app, I've never had never had anybody reach out and contact me and say, hey, we saw this thing. Here's the answer. I mean, that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So, Steve, does it sound am I am I closer to am I closer to the horse being at water or am I further away after one weekend? and stuff like that i'm definitely gonna have to move from gnome to kde to try this out now <laughs> no 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 you're good if you're on gnome it doesn't crash on gnome it crashes on kde no i understand but you know if i'm trying to follow Noah's step footsteps and live in the panacea i have to move to matrix and join the kde clan and uh what else is it that i have to do i don't know uh, you have There's to be probably a list uh, yeah yeah you have to you have to you, you can't skip over xmpp you got to try that out and give that a roll and struggle with that right. for a little bit i then, have to work with the jmp stuff yes. and yeah like I, i've got a list of things right so i'm just gonna just throw out everything that i've done in the last oh i don't know decade and right. uh just start over that's and right that sounds pretty good okay good i'm glad we're in agreement so um <laughs> i'm glad to see that the, this is moving nicely this is good this is good um the other thing that came across my radar steve uh, steered me in the direction of this device called the home troller. Now, to be fair to Steve, he was, I think he was like 80% making fun of it and 20% being like, oh, this is kind of cool that this is a product. But essentially, you can learn more at homeseer.com and we'll have a link for you in the show notes. But essentially, it's a $300 computer uh, that has an Intel Celeron processor, four gigs of RAM, 64 gigs of storage, a LAN port, three USB, HDMI, USB, and some audio. And the idea here is you buy this thing and it comes preloaded with Windows 10 and this the software called Homesteer. Don't know anything about Homesteer. Wouldn't recommend you use it. Think it's a waste of time. Also, Windows 10, terrible idea. But 
Having a box for $300 and a box specifically designed for home automation, they include the little Zigbee Z-Wave stick that you can plug in. That maybe has some interest to me if I could wipe it off and throw Home Assistant on there. Steve, what do you think? So I, the first thing would be, what is the what is the controller that they're including with that? Because the value proposition on this seems low to me. Like mm. we're talking about four gigs of RAM yeah. and a sixty-four gig unqualified SSD. Like, is it an NVMe drive? Is it just a plain SSD? Because like, if it's a plain SSD, that's like ten dollars. So they they spent fifteen dollars on the RAM and ten dollars on the hard drive and put it inside of a NUC and charge three hundred dollars for it. When you could go get an Odroid which is arguably far more performant for $129 and then add your own $4, you know, $15 RAM stick and $10 CPU and be ahead by at least half um, with better performance. So not sold on this, especially because like, I don't know, buying a thing used to be back in the day, you could only buy a thing with Windows on it. But now Mm -hmm. you're buying a thing with Windows on it specifically to throw the Windows part of it out. (laughs) Um, That that seems to be like, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul sort of thing. Well, the Ordroid goes up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. So you go from a machine that would, that would run Home Assistant comfortably, but you could literally virtualize or containerize Home Assistant on... On the Odroid, presumably, get more performance, more memory, more storage for your money, and have a more open platform. Plus, it has another. It's got a an extra USB port, so it's got so the the Seer has three USB ports. The Odroid has four. Mm -hmm. Seer has one LAN point LAN port, and the Odroid has two. Um, And instead, so the Seer has VGA. I don't know why. um, For all those VGA monitors you have laying around. Right. Uh, whereas the Odroid has HDMI and DisplayPort, as well as the regular three three point five millimeter jack for audio, as and the audio, uh, sorry the the SPDIF uh, port. If you remember those, I'd really like to hear and see what other people have going on. But I tell you, one of the things that drew my attention to this, Steve, is that this is what ordinary people are going to buy, right? Ordinary people are going to go to amazon.com. They're going to look for the home automation thing that they can buy that connects all of the things together. Home Assistant is a fantastic experience. It just needs to be available to normal people. And I think if there is some way that we can do that, either by way by pairing it with a Raspberry Pi, pairing my Home Assistant still running on a Raspberry Pi like Gen 2. I mean, it's stupid. And, it, and no, no case or anything like that. We're raw dogging it. It's hanging from the Ethernet cord. It's got a micro USB thing plugged into a, you know, to a UPS sort of a deal. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're nothing in the way of well-designed here, well-engineered. And yet the thing has run flawlessly for, I don't know, five years plus now. So I, I, I would like to see this hit more of the mainstream or at least hopefully so i guess the only counter there is they do right they have the home assistant blue and now it's the home assistant orange um, which you can buy from nebukasi i will grant you it's not on amazon i'm not exactly sure what what the reasoning for that is Mm -hmm. but in terms of like if you just want something to buy that comes with the nice branded home home assistant logo and the home assistant it even comes with like the matter um the matter radio with it so I mean you you can buy it it's got the nice case it looks it looks great feels nice like it feels like a solid thing you just 
you'd have you have to go to the Nebocasta website to get that. So I suppose I'll I'll seed that point. You can't just go to Amazon for it. Should we get uh, with all of that out of the way? Would you like to get to some feedback? Yeah, let's answer some questions. Our first email today comes in from Eric. Eric writes in and says, "Hey, Noah and Steve." Great show. Longtime listener. Really one of my favorite listens every week. I wanted to get your guys' advice on third-party email hosting. I help run a charity foundation, and we're looking to set up email for our domain. I can imagine the nightmare of self-hosting, especially the very intermediate skills. So I was thinking of going the third-party route and thought this might be a good question for the show. The site is hosted at Squarespace, and the recommendation there is to set up Google Workspaces. As an office IT guy... That spends a lot of time administrating Microsoft Office 365. I'd like to stay away from that world. Also, I don't think we need more than email. Ideally, I'd like to find a solid service that focuses on email, and not a cloud office. We provides support for Linux and open source ecosystem at the front of the line. Are there any services you've used to recommend? I should also note that other users aren't technically inclined. And so I'd like to take the work on their iPhone. Thanks for in advance for any suggestions you may have. And thank you very much for the dedication of putting a show together at such a high quality level. So, Steve, if you woke up in his shoes, what would you do for third-party email hosting? Proton Mail. That's what really I would do. even yep. for a business. Yep, absolutely, hundred percent. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Well, why would you trust them for a your personal email, but not a business email? You don't. You think that they can't handle that? Oh no, no, no. I, I trust them a hundred percent. It's it's really it's a cost thing. So uh, what I, what I would say is so in in per so I guess I should define why I think there is a difference. So. For me, the the security in Proton Mail is only there, obviously, if you're using to or from uh, Proton Mail where there's encryption, right? And so, you know, going back and forth between my wife or going back between my kids, that I'll pay for all day long, and it's absolutely worth it. Love uh, Andy and love Proton Mail, love the entire Proton suite. That's what hosts my personal email, and I love it. At work, though, I use Fastmail, and here's why: Proton Mail. Especially if you're trying to get away from uh, if you're wanting to have non-technical users use some of these things, there are some hoops you'll have to jump through. So, for example, if you want to use Thunderbird on the desktop, you have to install a bridge. The bridge goes out and retrieves your encrypted email, hosts a little local mini IMAP server, then Thunderbird connects to it. And that bridge has to be running in order for Thunderbird to work. So what we've done at work, I go by a couple of things. So my first premise is. At work, all my emails are going to and from another unencrypted party anyway. So there is no point in trying to encrypt my side of it because somebody else has a copy of it anyway. Uh, Fastmail, three bucks a month, privacy-centered calendar and contacts. When they say privacy-centered, what they mean is they don't sell actively sell your information. They're still part of the Five Eyes Network. So if somebody comes looking for uh, with a warrant, they're going to be able, and they will, turn over all of the content there. But like I say... At AltaSpeed, anyway, you could go get that from whoever it was we were communicating with, and we don't have anything to hide. We're a public, you know. So all of the things like it, the privacy really isn't important to me when it at at work for work things when it comes to encryption over email. There isn't an expectation of privacy there, and if there is, we're using some other mode of communication. But three dollars a month per user per account, which is a bit of a price break as as compared to Proton Mail, especially if it, you're you're using multiple users. And then on top of that. It is an office suite insofar as it's designed to do all of the things that your office is going to need from an email productivity suite. So it's going to do calendar. It's going to do contacts. It's going to do uh, your email itself. It has a web login. Or when you go into Thunderbird and just type in your username and password, it'll go and discover all the IMAP stuff and automatically map and do all of the rest of that. As an administrator, I like it because it allows me to do a couple of things. I can either open individual users' 
inboxes, which is remarkably helpful when you terminate or you have people that turn over that sort of thing. For certain users, like we have administrative or HR people where I don't want anybody to be able to open their inboxes. You can mark them as a private user and that removes that functionality from the, the system administrator so they can't open it. So they kind of give you the, the, the best of all worlds. It isn't private. It isn't what I would use if I wanted everything to be encrypted because it doesn't exist. But three bucks a month per user per account, two gigabytes of storage. It's a pretty solid deal and it's a great way to get started. You, they'll walk you through mapping all of the records on your domain and on your site. So you, they'll go to, you know, mail.yourdomain.com and then you can put your own brand and your white label on it. So nobody knows what it is behind the end. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty slick system. I think I would look at that and, and certainly consider ProtonMail. If you have the money for it and you're able to support them in that way, I think that's, I think that's even, I think that's even better in a lot of ways. Um, I, I just, I, I struggle a little bit with the, the value proposition uh, for business, particularly given, what else is out there and given where that mail is going to wind up anyway. Well, let, let's be a little bit fair. Like you're making it sound like it's a mountain and a molehill. Like, so for no, like seven, ten bucks, a seven month. bucks a month, it's seven. Okay. Right. So they have two different ones. So like the $7 a month one is like, there's it's $7 a month per user. So yes, it's more expensive. Um, By twice. Yeah, it is. It allows uh, three different email domains. Every every user oh. that you sign up has ten email addresses that are possible, which is useful. There's 15 gigs a month and uh, per user and a, a a VPN that's available. That sorry, you reminded me. That was the other thing that was problematic about ProtonMail. They limit you to how many aliases you can have. So you get ten, and then that's it. Um, with most, and this, this is true of G Suite, it's true of Office 365, it's true of Fastmail, it's true of most mail services. I can have as many email addresses as I want. What I'm paying for is mailboxes. And Proton does that a little bit differently. Uh, no, you can set up unlimited um, aliases, right? We can, so- we can fight about this off the air, but I've tried, and they limit how many different, once you get to, to a limit, you can't add any more addresses that can be forwarded to your, your Proton mail. You have to do that outside of Proton. Mm. You're right. We'll have to take this off the air because that's not been my experience. Okay. We'll fight about it later. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, so I've got another soft skill question for you guys. It's become clear to me that I'm just not equipped to deal with oddball personality types. For example, those persons that are randomly say things that make the entire room go silent. Persons that bring up political things into work or that have very different viewpoints from where I stand. It does seem generally that the social contract used to exist between employer and employee is disintegrating. In past days, it was considered impolite to bring up religion, politics, etc. into the workplace. Now it seems it's commonly accepted and in one direction from the employer. I think I have a solid technical skill set, but it's becoming clear that I'm not good at dealing with off topic type of work discussions as well as being an office oddball. The only solution I've come up with is constantly mute myself at work. Any tips you have in the workplace, my inability to deal with these types of situations is affecting my career to the point I need a new strategy. So, Steve, this is uh, this is kind of your wheelhouse. If you woke up in Jeremy's shoes, what would you do? Every day, every day I wake up. in my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There is not a, a one answer fits fits everybody to this. Um, I'll try to give you some general pointers. The first thing I always start with is you really have to know yourself. I know like it sounds hokey, but it's honest to goodness the truth. 
it, it's really, really important that regardless of uh, which methodology that you buy into in terms of understanding personalities and personality types and how you interact and react to each other, you need to, to figure out where you sit and crystallize that in your mind. Because the only way that you're going to come up with strategies that work for you is by actually understanding yourself. What do I mean by that? In, in short, the way that Noah and I would diffuse a, a situation is completely different. And if I tried Say to take again. Noah's approach, I would fail spectacularly because I, I can't do that. I just like um, there are some people that are very good at uh, genuinely being concerned with the other side of the table. And if I tried to do that, I would come across as fake. And there's nothing that sets off people more than being fake. So all that to say is you have to spend some time thinking about who you are and, and how your personality can interact with people before, um, before you can be any kind of successful. Because people, you may think that you're following all of the right tips by um, any number of wonderful authors out there. And I, I truly mean that. There's a lot of work out there. But if it doesn't work for your personality, trying to implement somebody else's strategy will fail regardless of how good it worked for other people. So that said, um, a lot of the times I get myself out of situations by, um, I, I have a, a, an ability to joke with people and I, I will change the subject or make some sort of uh, remark that will get me out of the situation. Further to that, my other favorite go-to is just saying, okay. Okay is a non-committal, I'm not like you can frame this in your brain as I'm not agreeing with you. I'm just acknowledging the fact that you spoke. If the other person chooses to think that you have agreed with them, which is generally the case, they have nowhere to go with that. Right. And so mm -hmm. it will get you out of those situations where uh, you're in a like a, a political or religious conversation that that happens to be happening around you. Right. No one can fault you for for being disrespectful if all you say is OK. For the person that is like making the room go silent, there's nothing to say to them. You are not responsible for carrying the conversation for somebody that just comes in and is completely awkward. Let you it be you awkward. Can't, you, can't, uh, you can't argue silence. Yeah, exactly. That is as neutral as you can come. And there's, no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. What would you do? So I think I would start by saying that it's important to recognize that our goal should be to be building relationships with people and not agreements with coworkers. This is one of the things that I found. I guess I didn't for a long, for the vast majority of, of my adult life, I've never, I've never worked in a corporate environment. I've worked in, in small business, small business environments. And it, it hasn't been until recently that I've spent more time inside of corporate environments. And one of the things that really drives me nuts is this concept of coworkers and it's just i'm we're here to coexist in the same space but we don't have to care know each other or anything like that i i think it's not conducive to the way people are designed to build relationships but the other thing i would tell you is sometimes the weird ones are the people most worth investing in and so what i would encourage you to do remove the label dig into the nuance nuance and start asking questions if you know so I would start by saying I 100% agree with what Steve said. If you want the defensible answer, just don't say anything because then you're not responsible for anything. You can't be held responsible for something you didn't say. So that's the safe approach. But if you want to be a risk taker, go ask your coworker 
why do you, you know, Donald Biden is the best president ever. Okay, well, tell me why you like Donald Biden. Well, why is that? I think Donald Biden did X, Y, and Z. Do you, I mean, what do you think about that? And and go dig into it. And don't, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting you argue with the person, but go dig in and understand who they are and why they think the way they think. I'll give you an example. I was with a friend of mine, and we went to the grocery store at like 11 o'clock at night, and we went to purchase a pizza and some and, and, a, and a soft drink. And we went and we got the pizza and we forgot about the Coke. And we got back to my house and we went to throw the pizza in the oven. We went, oh, shoot, we forgot the Coke. Well, this presented a huge predicament because now you can't eat the pizza without the Coke. But at the same time, if we go back to get the Coke, the pizza will burn. And if we take the pizza out and then go get the Coke, then the pizza will be cold by the time we get home. So we did the only logical thing two people could do, which was we took the pizza to the store. So we walk back to the same grocery store. Now, mind you, this is the middle of the night and I live in, in BFE, North Dakota. So there's like not another person in the store. It's just us. And I walk into the store and the, the, the lady that had checked us out as we're walking back up to the checkout with our soda and this pizza that we've made, she's very upset. And she says something along the lines of like, did you pay for that? Or did you buy that or something? Which is an obviously silly question because, you know, it's cooked. So that didn't make a lot of sense. And she pretty quickly realizes that and then kind of backs off on it. And we go in and we check out and, and drank our Coke while we, you know, got the pizza and whatever. So we leave. And every time after that, when I went to that grocery store, she would give me a dirty look. And she was very unhappy and very standoffish and very angry. And about the second or third time, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I bought the, I paid for the pizza and I paid for the Coke. I could have just went somewhere else and got the Coke if I had known it was that big of a deal. But I just, I took it upon myself. It's like, I'm going to be exceptionally nice to this woman. And I'm going to see if I can flip her around. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, after like six times of visiting the store and smiling at her and being nice to her and talking to her about her life and asking her how things are going and how, where she was in her day and that sort of thing, eventually she flipped around. And today, she's friends with my kids and she says hi to them and, and, and we're on a great basis and it was fantastic. Now, it took significant effort on my part and there was significant effort on her part not to budge, but eventually kindness won out at the end of the day. So... I might suggest you 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 consider anyway going out on a limb. It might totally bite you. It might be a terrible idea. And so if you want the defensible safe answer, then I would 100% go the silent route. But if you want to get if you want to get crazy and step out on a ledge, then go beat your coworker to death with kindness and see where that gets you. The other thing that occurred to me while I was listening to Noah was if you feel so Jeremy, if you think that you have decent social skills, one of the things that will be a benefit to everybody, including your employer, is if you're able to establish a mentorship relationship. This is something that I have mm. done at my own work. Because sometimes people who are awkward don't realize they're being awkward, or they are obviously struggling to fit in. There, there's, there are like four, um, four stages to engaging, especially in co-work uh, we, like, I'm not going to get academic here and, and tell you all four of them or anything like that. But one of them is this idea of the need for um, feeling like they're part of the group. And so some people will hope that that floats on their own. Other people uh, are going to try and make that way. Like they're going to try and inject themselves. And that's where the awkwardness comes from. And to those people, I have some level of success helping to mentor and guide them because the intention is good. Now, there's nothing that you can do if they say something completely loony like, 
I was visited by an alien last night and it abducted my dog and then came back for my children. Like you can't do anything with that. That, that guy's just kind of crazy, but you could go help uh, him find his dog. Well, maybe, uh, <laughs> but, uh, notwithstanding anything like absolutely ludicrous that, that, that you find abhorrent, you might take it on yourself to, to try and mentor that person a little bit. And that's a benefit when it comes to your review time. Um, at least in companies that you want to work for, they will look for how are you giving back? So we pay you to do this thing that you're doing, and that's great. But when you're trying to make the case for a raise or a promotion or something like that, what sets you apart is how you're giving back to the company and showing that you're vested and helping your coworkers succeed, being a force multiplier, as Red Hat says, that is super valuable to companies. And it's a skill that you can build up even if your current company doesn't like it, like doesn't recognize it. Our third email comes in from Josh. Josh writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, I thought of an analogy for the Red Hat situation. I don't know if it holds up. Car company A decides to build a car. They don't have to rediscover fire, but they build it on the backs of giants in metallurgy. Computer control, all the things that would build a car. Some parts they build themselves, other parts they buy, and some parts they're given for free. Car company B comes along. They look at car company A and thinks, that's a solid car. We'd like to build something like that. They build a smaller factory beside car company A. And car company A allows them to come and take parts and take boxes. And they even allow them over to their factory to build the car. They even go as far as to say any of the parts that we have with our branding on them, we'll remove it and allow you to take those parts. Car company A sees financial times are getting difficult. They're having to lay people off and decides they can no longer continue to allow car company B to come over to their shop and take their parts and assemble and put their name on it. So car company A, however, says, here's where we buy our parts. So you can come get them for free and we'll give you that information or we'll even go as far as to give you all of the CAD files so you can design your own and it'll allow you to continue to build the car. We just can't give you all of the finished parts anymore that we put together and we paid for. This is how the Red Hat situation seems to me right now. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I out of my mind? Thanks for considering this and have a great day. So, Steve, I think this guy is spot on. What do you think? I think that is a very interesting analogy. I, I was visualizing it when I was reading it. I think that, uh, Josh, I'd say thank you for writing in. I think that's a very interesting take. I, I think he absolutely, I think he nails it. I think he sums it up and just absolutely nails it. So I appreciate you writing in. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. The show is live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. You can find the notes, podcast at AskNoahShow.com. To get the latest, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux 7. This is the show at AskNoahShow. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.